You're listening to the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast, a place for real conversations with people who love someone with the disease of addiction. Now here is your host, Margaret Swift Thompson. Welcome back. Today, I complete my conversation with Tom Farley. In this final episode, we talk further about his brother, Chris Farley, and how Tom navigated and still navigates the journey of grief. Tom shares wonderful stories about his brother. As everyone, the grief journey changes over time, and what we miss and remember also changes. The Embrace Family Recovery Podcast. When you think back through your experience as a brother to Chris, you got to know him obviously in a level nobody else did. What you talked about earlier, and I remember you sharing the story, but I'm curious which one you'll choose to share today, was how hard it was when he was around because he was so larger than life and friends with everybody and it was easy. And you found that very hard when you were younger to connect. Yeah. Do you have a story or two you would want to share that talk about that from the standpoint of the humor and the exhaustion of that humor in your family with your relationship with Chris? Because the one you talked about that I'll never forget was in high school when he would show up and you were just like, oh, gosh. Knowing that he was in the same building as me was just through my anxiety levels. Yeah. I mean, he was just always there, but everyone loved him. It was fun. He brought so much drama and excitement to our lives, but sometimes a little overwhelming for me. Again, I was trying to kind of connect and be this smart, you know. Almost the opposite of him. Yeah. Well, I always felt like that imposter syndrome. I always thought they can see right through me. I was trying to kind of prevent people from seeing the real person that I was because I didn't think they'd like that person. And Chris was doing just the opposite. He was just showing everyone, this is who I am. And that was threatening to me with Chris around there doing that because we were both Farleys. We were both brothers. We were both close. And I didn't want to like, no, I'm not like that person. But I was. I totally was. I am now. Yeah. I just remember hearing you talk about it and having a lot of compassion for you of that struggle. Very different dynamic. My brother's older than me. My brother is not a comedian. But my brother was the straight A, never had a relationship, no drama, well-behaved, loyal, like all the stuff. And then I came along and I was boy crazy. Honestly, never wanted to be home if I could be out. Didn't care to go to school or do very well in school, though I went. I didn't do well. And I was the problem child in the family. And I had this epiphany sitting with your story thinking, wow, I own amends to my brother. And the amends I owe to my brother is thank you for being steadfast in who you are. And I am sorry for the energy I must have taken out of the family in my antics. You know, that's really interesting because I bet Chris 
would wish that of me too. I'm sure he would have said you were trying to set the bar too high for me and probably yourself. Totally. I was comparing and I never measured up. Never measured up. Yeah. And so I got my attention in other ways that were not always good for me, not always healthy for me, and didn't work very well many, many times. So even though I looked like I was the socialite and I was the visitor with everybody and maybe he felt isolated and alone, I wasn't okay in my skin. I was an imposter because I was never measuring up to the standards that I thought I was supposed to. Yeah. Yeah. So it goes both ways. Yeah. It does. And that's what I love about talking to people in recovery, because I hear things in your story that may be very different than my story. I'm in Bermuda with my brother. You're in Wisconsin with your brothers and sister. And we didn't have any alcohol in our home. You did in your home. Doesn't change those different dynamics. Right. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. It is amazing. It really is amazing. Recovery is a great equalizer. Yeah, it totally is. It, it's funny. I, I used to years ago, you know, when I first started this, people would ask me, what what do you miss about Chris most of all? And I'm like, uh, you know, I, I miss when I hadn't seen him in a while, he'd come through the door and we'd have this huge bear hug and just hold it. And it was mm. just, I could still feel it. Mm. It was so genuine and so brotherly and loving. I cherished those times. But now when somebody asks me what I miss most, I go, I saw Chris when he was in recovery. Mm-hmm. I get to experience recovery now. I would have loved to have been in recovery with Chris. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. We would have talked about so much. Because I'm sure there were a lot of traumas we shared, a lot of traumas we gave you, tons of stuff. It would have been truly amazing. Yeah. To have a connection on that level would have been amazing. Yeah. I hear you yeah. loud and clear on that. I'm so glad you got a window into his recovery before he passed. Yeah, no, I I do love to talk about that. People love to talk about everything else, but, and I'm like, I got to see it. Yeah. You met him. Like you said, you met him. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely beautiful because we, on the outside world, met who he put in front of us. Yeah. Yeah. You met him. You met the man, the boy, the person who had found something. At a time when, as I said, in the family hierarchy, I was supposed to be the older one. Setting the examples, just being the person everyone kind of except for at that time, I was looking at my little brother like, I will never be this. Not only was he successful in his own, but he was doing stuff like volunteering at like churches and assisted living homes. And I'm like, why are you doing that? That sounds horrible. Because he just was, he needed to be of service. And I look back at it now, I'm like, oh, man, that was Outwardly saying, you know, that's crazy. It's nuts. But inwardly, I was like kind of jealous. Like he's on to something. He's figured something out that like what an example my younger brother is giving me. The grief process, right? It's a journey. Yeah. And you spoke to it a little bit in what you used to say when asked what you miss most, what you say today. A lot of people, the grieving process is medicated because they don't know how to do the grieving journey, right? Like it comes out of nowhere. It's not neat. It's not this trajection through. It's messy, right? Kind of like recovery, because you never know what's going to come up when. What has your grief journey been like? Have you felt like because Chris was a public figure, it made it different? I know it's hard to compare, but you've probably lost other people in your life who weren't a public figure. 
How has the journey been for grief for you? Luckily for us, Chris's career and celebrity, you know, it didn't change us at all. He was always just my little brother. He was always Chris. And I love that. It didn't change us one bit. Because for the fact was like, we were all pretty freaking funny. He was just a little bit more. But yeah, that's who we are. Like, you know, he just got lucky. <laughs> what was really interesting to me is when I wrote my book on Chris biography, we wrote it. It was more like it was an oral history. So it was, we interviewed all these people in his life. Wow. If I had written the book in my voice, in my experience, especially back then, this was like 15 years ago, Right, it would have been completely different. All those things that I, I wasn't recovered, I hadn't dealt with any of that stuff. People would have, you know, like, kind of like, oh, he's got mm-hmm. some issues. <laughs> totally. Don't we all? I know, but it would have really come out. I you hear know. you. But instead, we interviewed people that we grew up with in Wisconsin, people we went to college with that we went to summer camp with, then Second City, SNL, Hollywood. And when it all came back in, we're piecing it together. I was amazed at like people's reflection. I'm like, his really good friends, they caught little pieces of them. Like, it's almost like all these people that didn't know each other, some of them did, some of them had different, worked with them. Or they're like, oh my God, they did know Chris. They saw him more than probably I did. And I saw through their eyes, I'm like, I like to say, like, I have a better relationship with Chris now because of this experience with the book that I wrote just really, it was part of the grieving process. Mm -hmm. But I have a better relationship than I did when we were alive because I got to see him through other people's eyes and not just my own. I love that. And I want to say, what's the name of the book? So people can look it up. It's called The Crypt. There, there, there it is. Chris Farley Show. <laughs> the Chris Farley Show. Perfect. The Chris Farley Show. So people will probably want to read it because I think that would be fascinating read. I think the thing that it makes me think of, and I'm curious if I'll go that next question. We don't know facets of all the people in our lives. We know our perspective, our experience. Right. But what a great thing to hear other people's perspectives of the person we've lost and loved. When you look back over all the interviews, was there one that stands out that's like, oh, you know, like that really helped me in my journey of grief? Like, was there a story that either shocked you, surprised you, just made you feel warm because it was just so special? Well, there was a moment. It wasn't an interview, but there was a moment we did a a memorial service in New York at the church Chris liked to go to called St. Malachi's. It's in Times Square. It's called the Actors Chapel. Chris loved it. <laughs> and so we had a mass for Chris, and a lot of people got up and talked. Danny Aykroyd had a wonderful talk. And, you know, and I was sitting with two high school buddies of Chris's and, and mine that worked in New York. So there was that continuity of friendship from, and they were friends in New York. And we were all three of us were sitting together. And this gentleman gets up and it looked like, he's like, where did this guy come from? It looked like he came off the street. Mm. And he was this old guy and he, you know, Otis, I think his name was, I think. And he had a, you know, ratty old Cubs. And he was pretty much on the cusp of homelessness, whatever. And his ratty old Cubs hat. And he talked about, like, I met Chris. He saw me on the street. He got me a meal once. 
and he was just telling this this relationship that he had with Chris. And he said, every time he came into New York, when he came back to New York, he would find me. And he gave me this Cubs hat, which I love because he knew I love the Cubs. And I, I, I never take it off. And I'm really sad he's gone. And I'm sitting there with these three people that have known Chris the longest. And we're like, do you know this person? I'd like this story. Do, did Chris ever tell? And all of us were like, never heard this before. And like Chris was out there doing this stuff. Uh. That he wouldn't even tell his, like his, he just, I just did it because I needed to do it. And we were like, whoa, do we even know this guy? I mean, it was just that first inkling of there is somebody there that we're not even, yeah, we got the tip of the iceberg. And I have spent the next 25 years trying to, to find out who that person is and hopefully I got some of that same stuff myself. I don't know if it wasn't just confined to it. So yeah, that was amazing. That is amazing moment. Yeah. Makes me imagine that the connection is the key, right? Like the connection for him with a complete stranger who became a friend who he cared for, who he had no reason to have to or need to. It was something he did. And it was somebody, I'm guessing, who looked at him and thought, wow, someone like him actually gives a crap about me? Like, yeah. what a beautiful message of connection. And I talked about, like, the first time when Chris, you know, it was third year anniversary of sobriety, and he said, come to a meeting. And I'm like, mm. okay. And he gave me this address, and it was in Hell's Kitchen. It was like this horrible part of town. And I, at first I thought, he's like, he punked me. <laughs> Like, uh, you jerk. Well, you've been through a few of those, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. That's I was very, I was waiting for it. But I went upstairs in this, like, just old, just ratty building filled with these, I don't know where these, you know, these people came from off the street. And there was Chris in the front of the room with his little blazer on. And I had never been to a meeting. I didn't know what they did in a AA meeting. And Chris was kind of, he started off the meeting. It's like, you know what? I'm no different from anyone here in this room. And I'm in the back of the room, I'm like, hey, yeah, yeah, you're a little bit different. And he's like, it, with all the sincerity in the world, it's like, no, I, I woke up today, like all of us in this room, hoping that I would stay sober today. And I did everything I could. And here we are at the end of the day, we did it. And we get cake and coffee and like, I couldn't have done it without you. And I'm hearing him talk about this. And I'm like, who is this guy? And it was like, and that's when I just saw what possibilities recovery can do, because I immediately saw a completely different person. And I heard Chris apologize to teachers. I've heard Chris like make false amends and compliant statements to so many. And this was the most honest and authentic I'd ever heard him talk. And I know he wasn't bullshitting. He wasn't talking to the crowd. He wasn't. Right. Yeah, and performing. Like, he, wasn't he wasn't performing. Performing at all. And yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting that just resonated with me. I was listening to Glennon Doyle's podcast yesterday, and she was talking about how she stopped speaking this whole year because she needed to work on not performing. She's a great orator. She's a great speaker. She can do it but it was not authentic. It was presenting and preparing and then showing up. 
and how different life feels when you don't put all that in it. You just be with each other. Yeah. And I've kind of learned that myself through all the talks I've done. And one of the podcasts I wrote, one of the books that I read is Brene Brown. Oh, yeah. I ask myself a lot of times, it's like, are you being vulnerable enough? And if the answer is no, like take a step back and get there. Because when I am that person, Mm -hmm. you know, when I do kind of work on that vulnerability and I do step into the arena, I immediately see like, you know, I feel better. That's what people want to see. That's what I need to be. That's who I need to be. So that's a barometer I use. It's like, if you lost that, you better regain it because that's that's where you need to be. Well, and I would think seeing Chris in the moment at that meeting to now living your own recovery and showing up in the meetings the way you do, like, again, another full circle moment of the gift he gave you. Yes, yes, yeah. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Hello, hello. I hope you've already heard about the Nashville retreat that I am so thrilled to be putting on with Dee Dee Armstrong. In the first weekend in March, we will be in Nashville, Tennessee. What a cool city. What a fun location. We're going to be in Welcome to 1979, which is a recording studio, and we will be hosting 30 wonderful people to be a part of a retreat that takes every one of us deeper on our recovery journey. So if you haven't checked it out, please go to my website, embracefamilyrecovery.com and look at the description and information about this retreat. Hey, there's nothing like a trip to Nashville to kick off this 2024 year with some kindness for yourself, some self-care and some connection with other people in recovery. You won't regret it. So come and join us in Nashville. We are so excited. You're listening to the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast. Can you relate to what you're hearing? Never miss a show by hitting the subscribe button. Now back to the show. I am so appreciative of your time and your story. I wonder if there's anything you feel you need to say, want to say before we close, something you haven't shared that you think would be valuable to our families. Well, you know, again, the family thing is, you know, it's been a, kind of a journey, as we love to say, but it, it has. And and it's that last little piece of like the sibling piece and the resentments that I might have had carried all these years. You know, I'm just starting. I've worked at it in pieces all along the way. And this is kind of the last little piece. So I'm really appreciative to, that, that we had this discussion because this is all kind of new territory for me and my relationship with my family and my siblings. And we still love to put out this image. And I'm like, I'm so uncomfortable with that now, but I got to power through that. I want to see what's on the other side. Yeah. I don't want to be that false kind of thing anymore. So on the beauty of recovery, it affords us the ability to not have to be that we can't change anyone in our family on whether they're not going to do it or do it. And that's the leverage that I think a lot of family members really want to believe will happen. If I get in recovery, everyone around me will start seeing it, wanting it and changing it. And I think we have to accept that is not always the case, but it doesn't have to change the improvement and restoration our relationships get through recovery. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. But it is tough because you love someone and you want them to have what you have. Well, yeah, we all create what these relationships should look like and we're supposed to look like and supposed to feel like. But a lot of times they're not. And the sooner you can get to 
away from what I want it to look like to this is what it is. And this is where start here. Mm. Don't start from the, you know, from the other end of the spectrum. Mm. You know, like I said to say the day in a meeting, I said one of the things I clung to early on in recovery is the staying of actions before results. And I spent my whole life with this result in mind. This is where I should be. This is the job I should have, the house I should have. These are how my relationships should be. Always looking at the result, not doing any of the actions. And now just doing the actions produce the results that are because they're from my actions. And the results are what the results are. And so even in relationships is this is the actions I can do and whatever relationship that produces with my family or anyone else that's what it is the outcome is not up to us it's not up to us and you should be very proud of the actions and the work you're doing because if you're doing all you can you got to feel really good about that and whatever the reward is it's rewarding well and i think you say it well when you describe your relationship examples in your story they may not be what i thought or believe they should be but they are so good yeah Yeah, that's huge. And I think that one of the goals of recovery on the family side, and I think on all sides of recovery, is letting go of those expectations of what this should be, ought to be, needs to be, and just work on what I feel is healthiest for me. The rest will fall into place. And you can't build a relationship foundation on expectations or false, you know, but you can build it on the smallest little thing that you've created yourself, this authentic relationship. It doesn't have to stay that way, but that's what it is. And it makes you feel certainly much better. There's possibility it can grow, and but it's going to grow in its own way because it's on that solid foundation that you built the two, right. you know, go right. from there. So I had one last question that I meant to ask earlier that I really want to know. One of the things that I am a passionate fighter for is more services for family because we are underserved. The people who have the illness get treatment thrown at them, therapy thrown at them, resources thrown at them. Granted, some don't get the amount they need, but we do a lot more for them than we do for family. So when you look at the evolution of your journey around Chris, we'll pick Chris for this one. Were you ever in a family program asked to go to a family program, involved in family therapy, taught around the family disease. Was that part of the journey of him getting help? No way. Hmm. No, that, that we're Irish. We didn't do those things. Not so at all. you didn't do them, but were you offered them? No, it was Chris's problem. And even with my parents, they're like, to the rest of the siblings, like, we've got this, you know, you don't have to worry about this. We're going to take care of Chris. When I was in New York and, mm-hmm. you know, an adult, and he was going to all these treatments. I'm like, what are you doing with Chris? And they're like, just don't worry about him. Mm-hmm. So you weren't extended offers to go to anything, do anything? Nope. Wow. But then in my own family, we started to do family therapy and it wasn't pretty. In your marital family? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hear you. I hear that you in the family of origin around Chris didn't get that opportunity for education or exposure, but in your family, when it came to stuff happening, you sought services. Yes, absolutely. And your mom did too for her, albeit different ones maybe then. I just think it's important to just like, do you think it could have helped you 
navigate your family of origins journey with Chris to have had an understanding of the disease of addiction and some education around it? Yeah, it certainly would have helped. But I think more importantly, we created this kind of, this is our brand. Right. And it's what we're putting out. And any problem, you know, it's an individual's problem. Again, I've talked so much about connection. There was no ensemble feeling about it. Families have to exist as an ensemble and you have to really look at them where everyone has a strengths and weaknesses, both. And when I see family struggle, what I see is this disintegration of the ensemble, the connection. There is no, you know, it's all superficial. Mm-hmm. There's no working on communication and there's this feeling of trust and acceptance. Right. Ask any family individual member, do you feel trusted and accepted in your own family? I bet a lot of us will say, not really. Mm-hmm. I have a roof over my head and I feel protected. It's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. You make a good point. One of my favorite evolutions from working in a treatment center to working on my own in my own business with Embrace Family Recovery was the privilege of coaching an entire family. I had like the Brady Bunch on my screen. And what was so amazing, I had the parents and all the sibs of the identified person, like unbelievable. And they showed up and we sat in our little Zoom Brady Bunch screens. And I thought, my God, the trajectory of change in the family system, even if it got hot, even if it was difficult to show up, to stay consistent, to be willing, even though it's awkward, to take risks, to discuss, to have space, all that stuff, all because one person went to a treatment center and was given by the family support and opportunity to do that. And then thankfully, the family then said, we need some help too. So we're on the same page so we can have support and conversation. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. And I just wish that for more families. I'm not saying through me, even. I don't care where, right? Like that's your all journey. But I wish more families could have that opportunity. Well, I went to a racial justice summit in that year of 2020, the turmoil that we had. And I said, I got to kind of, like I do at meetings, just show up and shut up and just Mm -hmm. listen. And I went. And the first day, the last speaker said, I'm going to send you home with the homework. I want you to go home and identify where in your life do you experience deep belonging? And I know his point was some people in our society that don't, don't feel that anywhere. Right. So I went home and I'm like, all right, where is it? And the first thing I thought of was like, is it my family? And I'm like, no, it's not. I don't feel deep belonging. The only thing I got, was it my company? Was it my alumni from college group? The only thing I'd come up with was my recovery community, mm. where I can walk in and I feel deep belonging every time, that feeling mm. I, that I never felt in my family, that level. And that's what I wish I would have had. And again, when I go into my recovery community, like these aren't my best friends. These aren't the people I hang out with, but I feel that deep belonging. I would have loved that with my family. Like, yeah, we're all different, but we should all have that trust and acceptance. Acceptance and feeling that I deeply belong in this family. If nowhere else in the world, this is where I belong. I mean, that's where it should start. 
So I am going to say my summation of that, because I think it's a great way to leave this. And I would love your two cents. My wish for, my desire for people in families impacted by this disease, that though the disease causes so much pain and destruction and fear and trauma, that we could all have a way to connect through recoveries in our own places that would bring a deeper sense of belonging within the family unit. I would love that. And the, the thing that holds us back is this notion that life has got to be easy and fun and wonderful. Mm-hmm. And I tell people getting in recovery that like we look at this gate and like everything beyond it, like, oh, my life's going to change, blah, blah, blah. And we don't make that last step because there's so much fear and doubt. And what I tell people is on the other side of that doorway, that gate, is the same fear. It's life. You're not avoiding anything, but we avoid so much pain. But I tell them what is on the other side is life does get better and it never gets better on the other side. So you're not avoiding anything. You power through that pain and doubt. And I think a lot of families kind of have that fear, that mistrust of each other. Just there's so many layers of that stuff that to get beyond that is just, uh, it's just, that's a goal. That's for sure. Absolutely. And a day at a time, it's possible. Yeah. You know, one of the most humbling realities, and I don't know if you can relate to this, Tom, but was for me, smacked me in the face hard and fast, was when I was in recovery. I'm back in my Bermuda, my home of origin, my family of origin, all the stuff's going on. Relationships are better, and I'm the only one who's changed. Wow. That means I, my disease, me, contributed to the mayhem, which I can't deny. And I don't need others to change to feel more okay in my family of origin because I have to work on that. Yeah, but I totally believe that, that everyone else has to make my life better and they have to change. And it got me nowhere. That's addict thinking at its finest. No, again, totally. Like flipping that around has changed everything for me. Everything for me. Amen. Agreed. And it's so counterintuitive to the way that I survived in the world before. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for being so open and generous while sharing your story and the Farley family story. Your mom blazed a trail, and I loved hearing how Chris has been such a big part of your ongoing recovery. Come back next week, where I have the privilege of introducing you to Jeffrey Golia, the former director of New York Center for Living, which is a treatment center that focuses on working with young people and teenagers ages 13 through 30, dealing with substance use disorder and mental health issues. I am aware that we do a lot of work around adults impacted by the disease of addiction and their loved ones. And I felt like it was important to get the voice of someone who had the expertise of working with people who were younger because it often starts younger. So I had the privilege of hearing Jeffrey speak in a training and found him a really good teacher. So I'm excited to introduce you to him next week. I want to thank my guests for their courage and vulnerability in sharing parts of their story. Please find resources on my website, embracefamilyrecovery.com. This is Margaret Swift Thompson, 
Until next time, please take care of you.